Welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us listening today and happy to have these guys with me here in the studio. Morning, Dustin. Good morning, Brad. And morning, Bob. Good morning. And we're going to catch up a little bit later with Dr. Rolf, who's the geneticist here at Kansas State. And she she talked to us a few weeks ago, but we're going to ha- we have further questions for her. So we'll catch up with her here in a little bit. Before we get into that, we're going to actually talk about some of the high slaughter rates in cows. What are the implications for your herd, or at least high sale rates, as well as some winter pasture management. But guys, I, I had a question for you that I was thinking of. One of the things, one of the great joys of childhood, and it's changed a little bit now, was Saturday morning morning cartoons uh-huh. all morning they had the great cartoons i want to know your number one favorite cartoon character from saturday mornings there's a there's a lot i did enjoy saturday morning cartoons but i i i, I like scooby-doo and so scooby himself hard to be wrong with the big dog dustin yeah i'm trying to think about what was my favorite watched lots of different ones i don't know that i had a favorite cartoon I Daffy think it was just Duck. saturday saturday favorite. morning and yeah, yeah getting your cereal sitting in front of the tv just life was good to- Probably the only one that actually felt a little bit sorry for Wally Coyote. He was trying so hard. He did try hard. He really had some effort put in. So, but it didn't always turn out, and sometimes it doesn't. But let's let's talk let's talk a little bit about cows. And Dustin, one of the things you and I have talked about recently was the slaughter cow rate is up. We've had cows and heifers going at a higher rate in both culls, sales, and moving to slaughter. What does that mean for the industry as a whole? What does it mean for my operation as a cow-calf producer? Well, thinking about it from a whole, which translates back maybe back to your specific operation, it's not necessarily... Yes, there's an impact today, but, you know, six months, nine months, 12 months, two years down the road, when we start seeing smaller supply of cattle, going to translate to uh, upward pressure on uh, prices, assuming demand isn't is being changing okay. so that's how then coming back to your specific operation prices okay so prices m- meaning that as i go into the future my livestock may be worth more in which case if i have resources and can feed bob i might want to go to the sale barn and pick up some of those cows today at bargain prices compared to the future good idea bad idea well it's an idea and it is, <laughs> it is it has both some good components and some bad components the good component is yeah I think there's some opportunity to buy some cattle that are undervalued because, again, supply is stripping demand in a lot of situations. And so I might be able to find some reproductive age cows that would fit well with my operation and might be able to buy them, particularly if we look into the future when I would imagine replacement heifers along with feeder calves are going to be at a premium in a few years because of restricted supply. So now we're in a situation where we've got a lot of cows available. So that's the positive side. The negative is we can bring some diseases onto our operation that we haven't seen before. Uh, The last time we saw kind of some big movement like this due to drought in part of the country, we saw some diseases move, particularly trichomoniasis, as well as some other things that moved into areas that wasn't there before. So I think you need to consider these animals to be kind of a high-risk animal. So if we buy some cattle, I'd like to not mix them with my herd until they've been segregated for a while. And then there's some things that are a little bit outside of animal health, but they're still important. I've heard stories of animals coming from a different part of the country bringing some seeds in their digestive tract, which then they passed in their manure to bring some weeds onto an operation that weren't there in the past. And so basically anything that the cattle can move, germs, weed seeds, anything like that, I may want to isolate them for a while in an area where I can make sure that that they're healthy and they're not going to cause problems for my herd. So 
Yes, it's an opportunity to maybe buy some replacement cows or some cows to expand my herd at a lower price, but there is some risk associated with that. So trichomoniasis, the protozoal disease that causes reproductive issues, one of the big things with it and some of our other diseases, no clinical signs. You're not buying no, they don't look sick, sick at looking all. cattle. No. Right. So so you could easily bring it on and, and that would be some of the concerns. The seeds and the manure that come out on the pasture. Well, and that, that may a, be why to put them in a dry lot or something like that where I have a little more, more control. And and again, you're gonna have to talk to your veterinarian about trichomoniasis control because it's a little more complicated than what I want to cover in this podcast because again the cows don't look sick and they're not gonna really express that until they get pregnant. And so if they came in pregnant or if they came in open all of that would impact how your veterinarian is going to kind of assess the situation and see how much risk you really are taking. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dustin, what uh, you, you talked about, it's going to impact my prices and impact in the, in the future. But if I don't have the resources now, this is, this is what we talk about the cattle cycle, right? I mean, this is not abnormal for us to go through this. Right. No, so I was what I was thinking was, you know, we, we, when we've talked about this before on other podcasts, is a plan, right? You think about growing, you think about maybe shrinking over time. Do you have a plan? Is your plan, Does it? are you buying heifers when everybody else is selling? Or is you're going with the cycle, against the cycle? But you should have a plan as, as how you're going to grow your operation, and that includes you know maybe sourcing feedstuffs, et cetera. Coming back to Bob's comment about you know, you know when you bring animals on, it could introduce diseases. That's, again, another plan. Do you have a biosecurity plan? So kind of what I've heard us talking about is basically planning, which... And we talk about that quite a bit on this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have to be sure that those bargains that you may get, if you had the resources, Bob, you brought up some good points relative to disease or disease or other things that we got to be careful not to bring something home we don't want. But also I have to have a plan. Am I going to expand, reduce? Where am I going to be? And you've kind of got a vision in broad terms of where that market will be. So certainly something to, to keep an eye on. And I, and I want to shift directions for you guys and, and think of a little bit about as we come into winter, what kind of pasture management, because we talked about in the summer, we talked about, okay, let's manage the water, let's manage the shades, let's make sure they have a place to go to keep out of the heat because cattle are sensitive to the heat. Varies by region of the country, more important in some really hot areas than where it's not as hot. Now let's flip it and let's start thinking about the winter. What are some of the things that you guys think about that are important for, I'm going to say housing management. I'm going to lump it all together, knowing they're out on pasture in most cases. Well, I'll start with the good thing is cattle are actually pretty well adapted to cold temperatures. Uh, that rumen creates a lot of heat, and so they can handle colder temperatures than, than other animals can. But that being said, they still need a, a good environment. So things like wind chill matters, and the the difference between winter when it's cold enough to be dry versus Honestly, we've run into more trouble sometimes when the temperature is a little bit lower and we get into wet. And so you get freezing rain or rain instead of dry snow, those types of things. So sometimes our really early winter storms before it's cold or late spring rains, we actually run into more a temperature threat to cattle than we do in the dead of winter when it's dry and their coat is dry and they've got a good thick winter coat. A lot of times they do pretty well with that and they struggle when their coat gets wet and and those other issues so th- there's I would, some differences I would say the, coat, the coat is huge yeah because and and 
We think the coat because that's easy to think about, but also their physiology adapts just like ours does. That first day in October when it hits 42, it feels I'm freezing. Yeah, it feels right? really cold. In March at 42, I'm hot. I, I'm comfortable, right? right. And, and cattle are no different than that. The only thing I would add is when you're thinking about this, you know, if you're wanting to put up some kind of wind block or some kind of structure to keep them warm or dry, how often do you really need it? Are we talking a week, a year? Because thinking about building structures, uh, although prices have come down recently with lumber and whatnot, they're still expensive. Yeah, I like definitely that. see some differences as you move uh, from central United States farther and farther north and or even into Canada. And and that makes sense because of the amount of uh, winter, winter stress that cattle might face in that like a lot of us, um, again, a, a short-term stress due to a, a short winter storm, but then, you know, it gets sunny again, the temperature goes up a little bit. That's very different than day upon day of winter stress. And and I, I kind of have a mixed feeling on on the structure. So building a, a windbreak or something like that, because much like what we talked about when we talked about shade back in the summertime is if you build a windbreak and the cattle really congregate behind it, and if it's not big enough, they're really close together. And so we can we can get into some problems with actually then it's it's too warm, it's too humid, it's uh, the we have a manure buildup. All of those can be problems if we don't spread them out. So I, I really like to keep the cattle spread out and they will find kind of micro environments in a pasture. So assuming they're out on a pasture where there's, you know, rises and higher areas and lower areas and some little bit of hills and things like that, they will find the best environment in a pasture and in a pasture situation i don't expect to get a lot of manure or mud buildup i am a little bit more concerned about if we're dry lotting them because in that situation you can get some manure buildup they're not able to find different environments and in those situations maybe a, a windbreak makes sense those are the types of things that i think about but those micro environments move too because when you put up a structure it's going to be in one spot. And if the wind shifts uh, a lot where you live, I mean, it's going to have a predominant direction, but if it shifts, may not always be covered. Whereas those micro environments, they may be sitting in this little draw one day and then over here on top of a hill the next day. They're pretty good at finding the best place for them. They've got all day to do it. And they do have all day. Yeah, they, they can work at it. So, so I think as you think about those, and we talked about maybe the investments or not in some of those pasture management, pasture improvements, what else goes into your housing consideration? Because I'm, I'm going to go to feed because feed is the next thing that we have to think about is where are we going to feed and should I be moving that area around as well? Yeah, I think that's also a very good point. And, and again, are we talking about the cows are out on standing dormant forage and there's sufficient forage where they're actually grazing standing forage and sometimes they can reach through snow a, a slight snow cover there's an, a limit to how much they're able to do that but they can they can bust through the snow to get some forage or are they really out on a pasture that has been grazed down enough that there's not enough forage out there so i also need to bring hay bales or or some forage feed out there if that's what i'm doing my preference would be to move it around again so that we, we don't cause cows to gather together but the other thing you think about is there will be days in the winter that are way worse than other days right and i want to be prepared for the worst days and so there are going to be some days where i want to be able to get forage or some feed to the cows that's just flat convenient it's next to the road it's next to the the gate those types of things which means that when the the weather is not that bad I want to take my hay someplace else 
save those places for when the weather is really tough. Yeah, because they'll move around. And we talked about that earlier, find the right spot. But they're only going to move so far from feed and water. And water is one of the things, Dustin, I know we've talked about a little bit before, relative to how we manage some of those different, what are some of our options for water sources? And let's say we live in an environment where it has a potential to freeze a few times in the winter. So yeah, now if we're talking on a big wide open pasture, are you gonna have to go out, break ice? I mean, or is it a pond that where they can access themselves? There's so many things, but again, it's part of it's a convenience factor. It's a labor factor as well. When we've talked about, we haven't really brought up this labor coming back to your feed. How far are you gonna be spreading this? How are you moving it around? It just takes more time, more labor. And so those are just a few other factors you might want to think about as you're thinking about uh, your pasture in the winter. Because all those add to our cost of cow carrying, right? So if we're carrying cows through the winter, we think our big cost, hay cost, and it absolutely is. But all those other little things add up because we start talking about adding freeze-proof waters with or without electricity or adding a system to keep the water open, a significant cost investment. And you're saying on the other side, don't forget about labor. Don't forget about labor. And then, you know, if you're hauling hay and you're, I mean, you've got machinery costs, you've got fuel costs. And so those are all the things to uh, just keep in the back of your mind as you're thinking about a plan. Mm-hmm. And to me, and I'll, I think I said it before, but I'm going to reemphasize it. There's the day-to-day plan for getting cattle through the winter. So I've got a, a grazing or bringing hay management plan to that. But I also need a plan for the blizzard, the time when... It's not typical. And usually what my plan for that is, oh, I don't intend to do that for days and days on end, but I need to have a way to get feed and water to cows on the worst few days of the year and be prepared for that. But that's not the plan that I institute the rest of the winter. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I like to have some hay put in a place that all I have to do is open a gate, right? And, And I like to put it out. It's for the worst day, but do you know when I like to put it out? Not the worst day. On the best day, <laughs> right? On the best day. And then I'll leave it there, and then if I need it, I can go open the gate and get them, get them out in there. So good thoughts there on winter pasture, winter management. Let's talk to Dr. Rolf because we've had some questions come up on some of the genetic stuff since we visited with her last. Happy to have Dr. Megan Rolf back again and visit with us about genetics and talk about some of the things that we didn't get a chance to talk about last time. So thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Dustin, we've talked a little bit about, and there are some fall bull sales, spring bull sales, but as we start planning out purchasing bulls, one of the things that makes me a little bit larry is thinking about those purchase prices. What do you, what have you seen in sales lately? Yeah, so, you know, I was at a bull sale about six months ago, and, and, you know, the range was pretty large. Uh, I think I bull went, cheapest bull went for like $1,500. I think upwards, I mean, there was a couple outliers that were tens of thousands, but generally in that six, $7,000 range. So there's a pretty big range. And again, they were different breeds. They were all different trying to, they're focused on different EPDs and whatnot. And so definitely big range uh, for the various prices for what the individuals were looking for. Well, and we know part of that range, and we've talked about EPDs before and specific traits, but Megan, I wanted to get your impression because there's a couple things that get thrown around. One that's in the sale catalog is accuracy. So we have accuracy of specific traits. And then two, depending on what trait I'm looking at, I need to understand the heritability of those traits. So if I'm going to buy a bull because I want, and and let's do heritability first. 
And let's say I'm going to buy a bull because I want to I want to save heifers out of that bull and I really want strong maternal traits versus I'm buying a bull because I need to improve my carcass characteristics. What should I understand about heritability to make some of those decisions? Yeah, there's some definite differences in heritability among those traits. So our highly heritable traits are those that are sort of the easiest to select for, if you will, relative to using any sort of selection tool. So those would be our carcass traits and, and structure and conformation traits, typically like mature size or mature weight. Our moderately heritable traits are those usually our growth traits, like weaning weight or something like that. And then our lowly heritable traits, unfortunately, are, are typically our, our cowherd traits, so our fertility, our longevity and things of that nature. So it, it's helpful to understand heritability, I think, for a couple of different reasons. One is to kind of get an idea how easy it is going to be to make genetic change in that trait using those EPDs. And I think the second is that even if a trait is lowly heritable, it doesn't mean that we can't make selection progress in it. And in fact, some things like fertility are so economically important, we really want to use all the tools available to us to make sure that we have good performance relative to that. But for lowly heritable traits, sometimes it makes sense to not only focus on selection, but to focus on things that we can do from a management perspective uh, to help improve those. And that could be um, management of the environment through nutrition and things like that. And it can also be management of your genetic resources through things like mating systems. So if we have a crossbred cow, we can take advantage of, of some of the heterosis benefits that we get for those lowly heritable traits. Yeah, it, that's been my experience. And, and again, we've got a geneticist here, so she can correct me. But there are, there are just a couple of traits that have some impact on fertility that are moderately heritable, like uh, age at puberty. But that's maybe about the only one. And, and so I'm going to use that to my advantage. But then mostly when we talk about having a fertile cow herd, it's one that's been managed well. So they've done their heifer development well. They've, they've got, you know, the nutrition and body condition score management of the herd done well. Well, herds that are doing great on fertility are probably managed well. They're probably not making mistakes with their genetic selection, but they probably didn't get there through genetic selection. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, I think, I think um, to get really good performance relative to fertility, it definitely helps to have good management, good nutrition programs and things of that nature. We do have some really effective genetic selection tools though for things like heifer pregnancy. Um, and in fact, if you look at genetic trends over time for the breeds that have those, you know, we saw decreases actually in, in heifer pregnancy for a long period of time. And then as soon as the EPDs were instituted and, and producers decided to put some emphasis there, you start to see a reversal in some of those genetic trends. So we can really make progress on a selection side and practice good management to really get the biggest bang for our buck relative to fer fertility. Excellent. So that talks a little bit about our heritability, which is one of my questions. The other is we've got an accuracy in the catalog. What does that mean? So I think of accuracy as risk man a risk management tool primarily. So regardless of the, the accuracy of the EPD, that EPD contains all of the information that we have about that individual's genetic merit properly weighted based on its source, whether it's from the individual's own record or a genomic test or records on half sibs or whatever that is. That number includes all of that information. So it's the best selection tool that we have. What that accuracy really tells us is it's kind of a measure of how much information goes into that prediction. So how confident we are in it and how much it may change over time. So that's why I call it a risk management tool because for those lowly accurate, low accuracy EPDs, those may change over time. So if we have a, a really critical selection decision that we need to make, so maybe we're picking 
taking bulls that are high in calving ease direct to breed to heifer, first calf heifers, maybe we want to try and use AI to get a higher accuracy bull um, for some of those critical selection decisions. Um, but it really gives us a sense of how much that EPD may change over time and thus how risky it is to choose any one particular animal. Because the big jump is between AI sires, lots of progeny data, and natural sires, there's a big difference in accuracy. And then within natural sires, and I suppose AI, if they have a long pedigree, right, then, then you get a bump. But those natural sires are all down in a relatively low range because they can only have so many progeny, especially our yearling sires. So you're suggesting maybe don't pick those if they have a specific trait that I'm concerned about because it may move too much. If you have something that's absolutely critical, it's worth thinking about using an AI sire. But we do have tools that can increase accuracy even in those yearling herd sires, and genomic testing is one of them. So if we use a genomic test and that's reported to a breed association and incorporated into the EPDs, we'll see a bump in accuracy, a reasonable bump in accuracy as a result of that investment that that uh, breeder has made to kind of give you more confidence in, in that EPD prediction. So one of the things that we can really think about relative to that is, is balancing our risk as well. So sort of the whole, do I put all my eggs in one basket sort of decision. And one of the ways that we can sort of balance risk of EPDs changing over time is to use a couple of different sires within the herd. Excellent. Well, thanks, Megan. Appreciate your insight. And I think it's a great time to start thinking about these, although many won't purchase bulls till spring. Start your planning now. Start your research. Be sure you know what you're looking at. We'll have to have you back again when it comes to middle of bull buying season next spring. Thanks, Megan. Look forward to it. Well, we appreciate she had the chance to join us and appreciate you guys' input on the cows going to slaughter as well as winter pasture management. Had a good chance to visit about some of those topics. As always, we love hearing questions and topics from you. So you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.